0: Good morning, welcome to our weekly Bible Talk. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to be talking about chapter 9 today. Uh, Glad that you're tuning in. Hopefully you'll find this time an edifying uh, opportunity to hear from God and to respond back to Him. Uh, I remind you of some of the purposes of these Bible Talks. I know we've been doing them forever. But with that I can uh, kind of assume that you know why we do them. Uh, What we're doing here, we're trying to model for you what thoughtful Bible reading looks like. Uh, A lot of people don't read the Bible correctly. A lot of people that read the Bible, you know, first there are a lot of people that don't read the Bible at all, but then there are other people that read the Bible but they don't read it correctly. They read it like a long collection of fortune cookies or something like that. They rip verses out of context. They don't really examine their own lives in response. Or maybe they read it almost as if it's like a weird horoscope or something like that, trying to you know discern who who's going to be the next president and when the world's going to end, that sort of thing. Instead, in these Bible talks, we're trying to model for you again, engaging with God through his word. Um, You'll notice that in these Bible talks, we don't rely on a lot of other resources. You know, I don't have a stack of commentaries next to me. Not that those are necessarily bad. God, of course, blesses his church with good pastors and teachers, and we thank God for them. But if we do believe, like Protestants have always believed, in the clarity of Scripture, that those things which are essential for salvation and godliness are clear, uh, then you I, ordinary believers, can have a very beneficial time just reading God's Word, You know, putting our thinking caps on, praying for the illumination of God's Spirit, and through that we actually hear from God. Um, God, as we here at Trinity teach, uh, He's no longer speaking through visions and prophecies and those sorts of things. Of course He did that at one time in redemptive history, but we think that that uh, time period has come to a close with the closing of the canon of Scripture but God still nonetheless speaks, and he speaks to us through his word. And as we understand God's word aright in context, uh, you know, figuring out the proper meaning, what, what Moses meant, or what David meant, or what Peter meant, Paul meant, that sort of thing, that's actually hearing God speak to us, what Scripture says, God says. So that's what we're trying to do. In addition to that, we try to respond back to God. So I always try to pray in light of what we've talked about taking themes, uh, promises, uh, ways that we should grow, repent, change, uh, and pray those back to God. So again, I'm trying to model for you a proper relationship with God through his word and prayer so that hopefully if you do these enough, uh, you'll start picking this up almost by osmosis so that then when you read the Bible on your own, you'll you'll have a similar... type of experience. Uh, over the years, this, is really, uh, this has been such a blessing to my soul, this just sort of thoughtful, prayerful Bible reading. Um, truth be told, in my, my own devotions, I don't rely a lot on commentaries, curricula. Uh, you, you know, Again, all of those can be a blessing. But if we really do believe that in Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, then we don't need to be totally reliant on uh, commentaries and resources and that sort of thing. And I do think that God's spirit can illuminate the average Christian with the average intelligence you know, if he'll just kind of, kind of engage his brain and heart uh, to have a very edifying time with God and his word. So that's why we do these particular Bible talks. And I hope that over the years as you have listened to these you, you find yourself implementing some of these similar ideas and principles in your own life and in your own Bible reading. I think, for far too long, Christians have uh, held the Bible at arm's length. Uh, you know even Christians that want to engage with God, we think we have to go through some sort of devotional. you know we can 't read the Bible on its own we 've got to read. Uh, our daily bread, or we can 't read the Bible on its own i 've got to read my uh, you know S- Charles Spurgeon devotional or something like that again, are those beneficial? of course, uh, but why wouldn 't we want to hear directly from God? if what the Bible says is what God says, why wouldn 't we want to just engage with the pure milk of god 's word um, so again that 's what i 'm trying to model here. I remember distinctly a Christian came to me once and they were like, you know, I'd like to do devotions with my wife. Could you recommend to me a devotional that my wife and I could you know, read and talk about together in the mornings? And I said, you know what, here, here are two good options. Uh, the book of Psalms uh, and the Gospel of John. Uh, that's not what this guy was looking for. He was looking for you know, something he could go to the Christian bookstore and buy. You know, devotional's. For couples, or something like that. Um, but the point was, you know, why couldn't you just have a very edifying time discussing God's Word together and, and, and even taking it and specifically talking about how does this apply to our marriage? Um, again, it's kind of a burden that I have and hopefully something that the Lord will use. I'm, I'm hoping that over the years, God uses me to help Christians get directly into the Bible as opposed to keeping it at arm's length. Anyway. Like I said, today we're talking about Exodus 9. And to remind you really, really quick of the context, the book of Exodus records God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses. For 400 years, the Hebrews had been slaves in Egypt. You'll remember they went down there with Joseph. There was this famine. Uh, Joseph goes down there. Uh, He winds up as the vice regent of of Egypt. Um, There's this famine. One thing leads to another. All the Jews come down. And at that particular time, there's only like 70. But then hundreds of you years pass and a pharaoh arises who didn't know joseph and he starts oppressing the people of israel makes them slaves and yet they they're fruitful they multiply you know which is an allusion back to genesis 1 and no matter how much they're fruitful no matter how much they multiply pharaoh continues oppressing them trying to kill them trying to wipe out all the baby boys And the people of Israel cry out for deliverance, and the Lord raises up Moses. Moses, like we've talked about a lot in this series, did not initially want to go. He wasn't interested in being the redeemer of uh, the people of Israel. But eventually, God gets his way, and Moses goes, and he's performed several plagues. And these plagues, what they are, they're efforts to humble Pharaoh. Pharaoh is very proud, very arrogant. He thinks he—he literally thinks he's God. You know, a lot of us we act as if we're God, and we kind of subtly think we 're God, but we 're not so audacious as Pharaoh was. he really thought he was God incarnate, but the Lord is going to show him no you 're actually a fool to think you are God, and i 'm going to humble you, and that 's what these plagues are, and I think we 've talked about how many we 've talked about four of them uh, i won 't try to remember or, you know recount them all i 'll probably mess them up, but you know you 've got the water turning into blood you got the frogs you got the gnats you got the flies truly miserable conditions. And I'd encourage you to try to put yourself in the shoes of the Egyptians. I mean these they're not only affecting Pharaoh; they're affecting his entire nation. And they would have been positively miserable. Your water supply turned into blood. Uh, I heard earlier this week about somebody's well that went dry. You know, they live on a farm, and the well went dry, and that it was it was like a life or death death situation. Uh, imagine the entire water for the entire nation turning into blood. Uh, pretty bad news. Imagine the entire nation just infested by billions of gnats, billions of flies. Absolutely miserable. I remember, you know, I've done my share of camping, and I've been. I remember some camping trips where we were just attacked by gnats, biting gnats that uh, were, were no fun at all. Imagine that going on nationwide, you know, for, for a, a good period of time because of the arrogance and the hardness of heart of your leader. But again, all of these are God's judgments designed to provoke. Egypt and and more specifically Pharaoh to repentance so that he'll let the people of Israel go you uh, I mean a lot of lessons you could even draw from that the way in which a leader's decisions has uh, implications for an entire nation um, you know I, I think that principle holds true today uh, obviously we're not guilty of somebody else's sins but our president or our governor if he does sin in certain ways that has implications on the entire nation on the entire state which is why we should pray for god-fearing leaders um, you know again again we'll be sort of uh, recipients of their good decisions and their bad decisions. So pray for God-fearing leaders. Uh, And again, this is not something that was only true in Bible times. I think you can, with a little bit of imagination, see how it's still true today. But anyway, let let me pray. I feel like I'm probably too jacked up on coffee today. That's why I'm speaking a mile a minute. But let me pray and then we'll dive into chapter 9 and see what God has to say to us through it. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, we love your word. We do believe that what Scripture says, God says. We do believe that you're still speaking to us today through your word. Please open our hearts, open our minds. Allow us to hear your voice in Scripture. Help us to sense how it applies to our own lives, how we should repent, believe, change. Help us, O oh Lord, to see the way in which the entire storyline of Scripture points to Jesus and culminates in his person and work. Help me to make comments that really bring out the meaning, meaning and the intent of this passage. Through Jesus we pray, amen. All right, we're going to start in chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, but as you can see, these are two shorter uh, plagues. So we're going to read uh, read verses 1 through 7, and then 8 through uh, 12, and make some comments on them both. So let's begin with verses 1 through 7, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them back, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died, and Pharaoh was sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now a few things to think on in conjunction with this parable, uh, first, as we've talked about several times. All of these plagues are directed at the different gods of Egypt. Um, we, I know I, I don't want to belabor this point, but if you're new with us, uh, the plagues were chosen intentionally. They were not arbitrary. It's not like gods are sitting up in heaven thinking, like, okay, what would torture these uh, poor Egyptians? No, they're actually directed towards specific, specific gods. They worship the Nile as a god. Okay, I'm going to kill the Nile by turning it into blood. They worship this god that had a human body but the head of a frog, and then he kills all the frogs. Well, here they also worshipped livestock. You'll remember that after the Israelites leave Egypt and they're wandering around the wilderness and Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments, what does Aaron make? Aaron makes a golden calf. you remember this? Uh, Where did they get that idea that they should worship a golden cow? I mean, did they they just pick that out of thin air? No, they're worshiping a golden cow because that was one of the gods of Egypt. And even if you go to... What are they? Museums that have extensive Egyptian collections. You know, for example, there's a really amazing children's museum in Indianapolis. When my kids were young, we used to go there uh, pretty regularly. And they've got this incredible display of Egyptian artifacts and whatnot. And if you look carefully at them, you'll often see uh, them bowing in worship to this big cow or this big bull. Uh, so that's where the the Israelites got the idea to worship a cow. And it's just illustrative of the fact that they did worship livestock and cows. Well, again, what is God saying through this by killing all of their livestock? He's saying, your gods are dead. Uh, I am the true and living God. Your gods are worthless and dead. Therefore, turn to me. And that, by the way, is another theme that you don't always catch in Exodus, but if you read Exodus carefully, you will see that part of the driving motive behind the plagues is to provoke uh, Egypt to repentance, to provoke them to embrace the Lord as God. He's, you know, The reason why God kills our idols is not because He's cruel but because He's the living God and because idolatry is bad for us. He's wanting to provoke us to repentance and to embrace Him. And that's what He's trying to do with the Egyptians, though a lot of them harden their hearts and you know, just put their fingers in their ears and would not believe. But that's why He's killing their idols one after one so that eventually they'll repent and embrace him as the true God. And we do think that at the end of the story when Israel leaves Egypt some of the Egyptians went with them who presumably had been converted to saving faith in Jehovah. But anyway God wipes out the livestock and think of the financial hardship that would have been. Uh, you know again, these are the days when your livestock was basically your wealth, um, you, you know cows and horses and ca- uh, camel uh, by wiping all of that out, that would have been like the, the great Depression times a hundred but that 's the length that God is willing to go to provoke people to repentance. A lot of things you could think about there uh, you know if you love money, uh, God is willing to take that from you bankrupt you to teach you that he is the true and only God now he doesn't always do that you know sometimes he's merciful and you know uses less painful means to provoke us to repentance but the lesson is the same Uh, embrace God as the true God you can't serve two masters you can't serve God and money And if you look to money, the economy, uh, your livestock as your God, sooner or later God's going to come after that and and kill your idols. And he does that again because he loves us. Uh, But again, think about how this would have just devastated the economy. And this is why I can't remember which chapter it's in, but the Egyptian magicians, they eventually come to Pharaoh to Kind of like wake him up and say, listen, Pharaoh, Egypt is destroyed. And when they say that, they're not using hyperbole. Egypt is literally destroyed in every way, You know, economically, religiously. Uh, Pharaoh looks like an arrogant fool, which he is. you know, you got people dying all over the place. I mean, God, again, is willing to slay our idols. But again, because he loves us and because idolatry is so destructive, With that, maybe take a quick uh, look at your own life and ask yourself what idols you're tempted to bow to. I mean, I know what idols I'm tempted by, um, and I thank God that God loves me too much to let me intoxicate myself with those idols. Uh, As his child, he'll come after me and chasten me when I need it. He'll open my eyes to teach me how dead and worthless these idols are. But do a little bit of reflection on your own life. Which idols are you tempted to bow to? And just kind of remind yourself that whatever they are, God's eventually, you know, sooner or later going to come after them and it's the better part of wisdom to repent of those idolatries as soon as possible lest God need to use very painful means to wake you up. Another thing you'll notice is the way that God makes an absolute distinction between the livestock of Egypt and the livestock of Israel. Did you catch that? Uh, Verse 4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. This here is evidently Designed to be proof that this wasn't some sort of like accidental virus that just uh, struck all these animals, uh, you know, th- and that's what Pharaoh does. Because if you look at verse seven, Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. There seems to be some skepticism on Pharaoh's part, even though he's been seeing all these plagues and miracles, and even though Moses is telling him exactly what's going to happen. He's still skeptical, and it seems as if Pharaoh's checking, like, okay, was this just some sort of weird play or virus that hit at the same time? But to prove that it's not some sort of weird animal virus, none of the cattle uh, and the livestock of the Israelites died, indicating that this was a bona fide miracle. And yet, again, Pharaoh is so hard in his sin, he will not let the people go. That's what verse 7 says. One of the big lessons that you do see from the book of Exodus as a whole uh, is the way in which miracles will not provoke saving faith. Uh, miracles are they works of God? Of course. Uh, do we pray for you know? Do we should we pray for a miraculous healing? We do. But don't be confused into thinking that if I just saw a miracle, saving faith would automatically spring up in my heart. You know, you hear this from time to time from atheists. You know, you ask an atheist what would it take for you to believe in God, and they say, well, you know, if I just saw uh, this car levitate in front of me and I could walk under it and see the car, and you know, then then I'd then I'd be persuaded that there was a God. No. Uh, in all likelihood you would harden your heart like Pharaoh and just explain it away that you know, you're having some hallucination or you, you know, somebody slipped you some LSD or something like that. Uh, do not buy the lie that bare miracles will provoke people to saving faith. It didn't work with Pharaoh, it didn't work with the Pharisees and the Sadducees during Jesus' ministry, and it doesn't work today what is necessary is God's Spirit opening the eyes, opening the heart so that we repent and believe. Uh, so, so don't misunderstand me. God's actually doing these miracles. You know, I'm not casting any doubt on that. But don't think that if I just get a miracle that all of a sudden my unbelieving spouse or unbelieving kids you know, that they'll come to Jesus. Um, not, not necessarily, and nine times out of ten that's not the case. They'll, you know, Because of the hardness of our heart, we harden our hearts in our sin. And again, what's necessary is a work of God's Spirit to illuminate and to open the heart. So pray for that even more than we pray for miracles. Um, One other thing to sort of think through, uh, God still does make a distinction between the world and his people, analogous to what he does here, but it's in the realm of spiritual blessings, not material blessings. Uh, you know, don't think that uh, God's going to bless me if I'm a believer with gold and a you know a Rolls Royce and a mansion, uh, and not the unbeliever. Things are different in this particular age. A lot of the tangible things that were going on in the Old Testament were designed to illustrate spiritual blessings that take place in the New Testament. You know, the gold of the temple and, and whatnot is, to, is designed to illustrate the beauty that's in Jesus who's the, in a true temple of God. Uh, so also the distinction made here, it's not identical to what's going on here in the church age. God does distinguish between the world and his people, but it's not in terms of material blessings, it's in terms of spiritual blessings. So you, what I mean by that is that today you, know, you might be living right next door to a, a godless unbeliever. Uh, they might have a house more beautiful than yours. They might have a car that's nicer than yours. They might have kids that are happier and healthier than yours but what they don't have is a true living relationship with God. They don't have the joy that comes from that, the peace that comes from that, You know, all of the fruit of the Spirit that comes from knowing God. That They know none of that. And that's the kind of distinction that God makes today. Not in the sense that your cattle are going to live while the you know, wicked unbelievers' cattle are going to die, but in the sense that you have a living personal relationship with God in this life and in, then in the life to come, eternity with God in heaven, the resurrection from the dead, perfect joy in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the kind of distinction that God makes now in this church age. And that's how I'd encourage you to read these uh, passages of distinction. You know, the, Again, the Old Testament shadows and types were designed to illustrate spiritual truths uh, that are of a more spiritual nature in the New Covenant. Anyway, let's read the next plague and I'll make a couple of quick comments. Uh, verse 8 And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh when he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now here again we have another plague, and this is positively awful. Uh it reminds you of what Job went through in the book of Job. You remember if you if you read if you've read Job, uh loses his livestock, loses his kids, but then he's struck with some weird disease where his body's covered with boils. Imagine that taking place on the entire nation of Egypt. But again, the Lord preserves his people, uh the the Israelites, and they're not struck by these boils. And if you've ever had boils, I mean it's I remember having chickenpox when I was, you know, let's say Eight years old, you know, it was a long time ago, but I, I can still kind of remember it. Uh, not a lot of fun. Imagine everybody in your entire nation getting in that, all like in the same weekend, um, and it's, it's miserable. They're probably oozing, they're probably bursting, they're probably, you know, they're, they're, a lot of these boils and whatnot are painful at the same time. And what's more, a lot of them leave scars. You know, thankfully, I didn't wind up with a lot of scars from chickenpox, but there are people that wind up with a lot of scars from chickenpox. So again, this would have been devastating. Now I mentioned earlier that that these plagues are directed toward the gods of Egypt, and there is debate over this particular one. The other plagues, it's fairly easy to connect them to certain gods, but there's debate over which god of Egypt is this particular plague addressed to, everybody covered with boils. And one theory that makes good sense to me is that it was directed against their god of vanity in their appearance if you 've ever seen books that uh, you know show you pictures of what the Egyptians looked like at this particular time, they were obsessed with their appearance, like nobody else on the face of the planet. You know The men would often shave their heads they 'd have elaborate eye makeup, you know sometimes these long braided chin beards the women you know you 've probably seen like the Ten Commandments and movies like that. Not all of that is perfectly accurate, but it 's pretty close, uh, and it does illustrate how obsessed they were with their appearance. Um, And what God is doing, he's again showing them the deadness of their idols. You worship appearance, you think you're better than the rest of the world because you're so pretty and you got makeup and you look so beautiful. Uh, Well, well, here's what you actually look like in your sin, and this God that you've been worshiping is a dead God, and I'm the true and living God. Now if that's the case, and it does make good sense to me, does that apply to us today? I mean, is our culture uh, tempted to worship physical appearance? Uh, Of course. Uh, Not everybody, again, different idols appeal to different people, but there's of course, this gigantic crowd in America today that's obsessed with Instagram pictures and makeup and you know looking more beautiful than everybody else, and you know there're actually specific celebrities that I'm thinking of right now that you know they, they make billions of dollars uh purely based on their appearance and on their body. Uh, realize that is a dead idol, and if God needs to, he will cut that dead idol down to show you that it's, uh, that it is lifeless and that he is the true and living God. Now in saying this by saying that you shouldn't care about your appearance, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, you know, brush your teeth, comb your hair, you know, look, look normal in a particular culture, you don't want to be uh, particularly distracting by how uh, you know, unsheveled you are, that's not at all what I'm saying. You know, it's fine to wear nice, You nice, know, to grow a mustache. You know, all of these things are fine and appropriate, but at the same time you can idolize anything. So be careful of idolizing your appearance. Now I can see that my time's quickly getting away from me. So let's talk in cl- conclusion about how we could pray this passage back to God. You know, a few things that I think of. Uh, first, uh, help us, Lord, beware of idolatry. Idolatry of, you know, I think the livestock thing really corresponds to economic idolatry. So Lord, please guard us from that. Guard us from worshiping the physical body, physical appearance. Uh, guard us from our idols. Thank him that he's loving enough to come to us to show us the deadness of idols and the way in which they will not satisfy. Let's thank Him that there's a greater joy, a greater fulfillment in knowing God through Jesus. And let's thank Him for the way that He still does make a distinction between the world and His people. But again, not so much in terms of earthly, temporal, tangible things, but in these spiritual blessings, uh, the personal relationship that we have uh, in knowing God. A lot of things that we could pray for. Uh, let me close this some prayer and we'll be done. Pray with me. Almighty God, thank you that you love us enough to show us that our idols are dead and destructive. Thank you for the way that in your mercy you do come after our idols to slay them. And yet you do that again to provoke us to repent and to trust in you as the true and living God. So please help us to all do that, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Lord, for those, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, please help us to be very careful of idolatry, of putting excessive hope in money, excessive hope in our appearance, excessive hope in anything, and help us to fear, love, and trust you above all else. Lord, we do thank you for the special relationship that we have with you, a relationship that the world will never know. Uh, Uh, the ability to pray, the ability to hear you speak to us, the ability to be indwelt by your Holy Spirit, to be convicted of our sins and to have our minds renewed. Thank you for the way that you still do make a distinction between your people and the world. Help us, those of us who are believers, to take full advantage of that. Bless now the remainder of our day. Give us opportunities to love our neighbor, to commend Jesus to others, and bring us back here soon to again study your word together. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.